This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Robert Boynton. Siva Vadyanathan worked as a newspaper journalist in Texas before getting a PhD in American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. In his first book, Copyrights and Copy Wrongs, he analyzed the history and cultural consequences of copyright law. In the Googleization of Everything and in his new book, Anti-Social Media, he thinks through the role that enormous companies like Google and Facebook play in the contemporary world. He is currently the Robertson Professor of Media Studies and the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. Siva, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's wonderful to be here and have this conversation with you. You start the book, uh, your most recent book, with a wonderful anecdote about Neil Postman, about the first time you you visited Neil Postman, sort of the great guru of uh, media studies everywhere and certainly here at, at New York University. And you you say that he asks you about the kind of morality, as it were, of training people to be skeptical uh, and downright distrustful of the media and then sending them off to jobs in the media. And you have a very interesting metaphor you use to describe the role that you believe you and others are playing. Uh, maybe you could talk about that. Yeah. I mean, that, so that was actually during my interview for what was a three-year postdoc in the Department of Culture and Communication, which is now Media Culture and Communication at NYU. I, uh, I had been doing a one-year job at Wesleyan in Connecticut after finishing my PhD and uh, you know, I took the train down to uh, have this conversation with Neil Postman, who's, whose books I had read. I'd never met the guy. I didn't know what I was walking into. I didn't know if he was going to be, you know, prickly or difficult, or he's going to be a teddy bear. And uh, it was a it was a uh, a really pleasant conversation. I mean, he's a really interesting guy, obviously. But uh, one of the questions that that uh, that I remember quite quite strongly is, he, you know, he said, you know, around here we have critics. I'm a critic, and he mentioned a few other of his colleagues, you know, well-known critics of media, including Mark Chris Miller and, and Todd Gitlin. And, and he said, you know, but our students are all going to work in these industries. So how do we serve them if all we're doing is complaining about media systems and, and media industries? And I, I, I paused for a second. I said, well, you know, we are clergy. We, uh, we are clergy and like clergy, sometimes all we can hope to get out of our day is to make, make the people in front of us feel a little bit more guilty about the damage they're about to do. Uh, and he loved that answer. Um, uh, you know, he had always been fascinated by, by what uh, James Carey called the, the ritual uh, view of communication, right? That the communication is actually a series of rituals, mediated rituals, you know. So he 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 found that answer to, to to sort of be very much in line with his mode of thinking. At the time and during our time together, when I worked with him at NYU, I'm not sure that we really were in sync, but it's always good at a job interview to give one the impression that the person you're interviewing is in sync with you. 
So, so how have you how how would you describe your rise through the clergy over these <laughs> three years since then? Are you oh. are you an archbishop? Or are you? Oh uh, boy, I don't know. But in the early days of my career, I was quite optimistic about all of these digital transformations. If you if you remember in the in the late twentieth century. The problem we were all trying to solve was the problem of the monotone nature of our media ecosystems. You know, we we had these big, booming white male voices, right, the Cronkites of the world, and not a lot of them telling us what was important and what was true. And there's certainly some virtue to that in the sense that there was a, at least in in retrospect, a sense of stability and um, a shared understanding of the world. But, of course, that meant that the vast majority of voices and concerns in the world were never being heard. The vast majority of voices and concerns in New York City weren't being heard, right, let alone the world. So, um, you know, we were constantly pushing for more voices and more channels. Uh, And the story of our media ecosystems in the late 20th century is a proliferation of channels, first through cable and satellite, and then by the 90s, the notion that we could all be publishers. And so growing up in that time, I could not have been more excited about the potential of a polyphonic media ecosystem. What I didn't anticipate, but perhaps I saw coming earlier than some, was cacophony. Cacophony turns out to be a step too far from polyphony. And and I think that's where we are right now. We're at a moment where not only do we have cacophony, it's amplified in some very dangerous ways by the algorithms that we have chosen to make choices for us. We've opted to use algorithms to make choices for us. So, so algorithms on Facebook or Google tell us what to believe, what to see, what to listen to. And it's often masked in a sense of populism, a sense that, oh, this is what our friends want. This is what the real people want. You know, this is what the majority wants. And so we now have a big gap between any sense of stability through which we can actually discuss the problems of the world uh, and uh, cacophony, which, uh, you know, fundamentally makes it hard to think. You, you say that wonderfully succinctly in the book. You say mostly Facebook makes it hard to think. That's right. That's right. And it reminded me of the the phrase, and you bring up Hannah Arendt towards the end. Mm-hmm. You know, Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt begins the human condition by saying that she's essentially going to think about what we are doing. Think what we are doing. That's right. And I think thought of that as sort of as a koan almost yeah. as I kept on thinking. I mean, isn't that stuff. a beautiful idea? Like, yeah. isn't that what I love about her work and I love about that book is that that's like the ur text for what we should be doing. Those of us who've chosen the life of thinking and writing and reading is that, you know, we should be examining the human condition and we should be thinking about how to think and thinking about whether we're thinking well enough. And I think it's pretty safe to say that as a society and as a species, we are falling short on our ability to think. When I speak about this issue, I often bring up the fact that, you know, in 1969, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire outside of Cleveland. Everybody in the country saw it. It was on the nightly news every night. Every newspaper covered it. And within three years, that event had galvanized what had been a latent but growing 20-year movement for serious environmental regulation. So by 1971, we have a Clean Water Act, a Clean Air Act, an Environmental Protection Agency. In that period of time, we had national debates. We had people talking about how to address the fact that our water was so polluted it would catch on fire. I mean, like a river caught on fire. Like, you know, that's biblical, right? So what 
we had in that moment was, you know, some people argued for market-based interventions and other people argued that, you know, litigation was the way to go and, you know, the, the threat of litigation would take care of the problem. And then other people argued, well, we need, a, we need a core of scientists who will decide for us what the standards of pollution, allowable pollution should be and, and then have a system through which we come up with, a, with penalties for those who pollute and systems for cleaning up what's already been done, right? And that, that rather elaborate, I mean, it, to think that we did that in this country. I mean, we always talk about how we reached the moon in 1969, but what we did for this planet in 1971 was actually, I think, more impressive, right? That just to summon the public will to do that. Now, of course, we've to various degrees unraveled that system since then, but, you know, that was an impressive thing. But what it took was a countrywide recognition of, of the problem and actually multiple problems. And then the political will to be able to address the problem in an intelligent and grown-up fashion, you know, after a river caught fire. Well, today the whole world is on fire and we can't have a grown-up conversation about what to do about it because we keep getting waylaid. We keep getting swept away in this insane question about whether the world is actually on fire and who lit the match as if it matters, right? Instead of just accepting the baseline, <laughs> accepting the fact, and then moving forward with, okay, what are our options and what must be done when, and, and addressing it like grownups, we keep getting swept back, right? So this is our fundamental problem with our inability to think and our inability to, to take on a problem that is not only in our face, but in our streets, right? Literally in the streets of, of San Juan and the streets of Miami and in the streets of New York. And we can't even deal with it. So look, this is not Facebook's fault, right? But because Facebook is the most pervasive media system in the world, which is an unbelievable thing to think about, 2.2 billion users in more than 100 languages. And Facebook is even more important in the growing, developing parts of the world than it is in, in North America or Western Europe, right? So in places like the Philippines and Myanmar and Sri Lanka, Facebook is the entire media system. We have to take it seriously because it is what it does to us and what it does with us affects how people think around the world. Reading through your work, I realized that there are sort of two poles. There is the one of kind of anarchism, the anarchist in the library, the name of your second book. And then there's sort of this more ordered uh, view of, of the world. In your first book, Copyrights and Copy Wrongs, this wonderful cultural history of American copyright law and copyright law in general, you talk about the limitations of copyright and the way that uh, the original idea of copyright has been perverted to instead of encouraging creation to actually limit it and you come up with some very modest uh, ideas for what uh, what has been called thin copyright, right. sort of not complete control but certainly not anti-copyright. Right. And that struck me as a very nice balance between sort of chaos or anarchy and a sort of total totalized control. Do you think that the, that the work you did in copyright and the way that copyrights should develop has that application for the world of social media? Well, I mean, there is a through line. There is some consistency to this and that um, I've, I've long taken what I call the small R Republican view of what our information ecosystems should be like and how they should be designed and regulated and so forth, right? So, so small R Republican in the sort of Madisonian sense, we should be concerned with concentrations of power. We should be trying to, you know, encourage competition and again, polyphony, but not cacophony. And that's why, you know, and, and I said very clearly, even though I was a critic of the extremism that was coming out of the copyright industries 
in the early part of this century, really complete lockdown of content so that people would not be able to share it or take pieces of it without getting permission or payment, right? That sort of model I felt would stifle creativity and, and stifle cultural democracy and render too much power in too few hands, right? So, so very, you know, very Madisonian in that sense, but also very institutional, right? Because one of the things I championed in the Anarchist in the Library is the library part of that, right? Because what I felt was that that libraries are a, a wonderful, uh, they're not only temples to the Enlightenment and extremely useful spaces for exploration and contemplation, but in an increasingly cacophonous world and an increasingly commercialized and commercially marked world, libraries are often the only spaces where you don't see Nike screaming at you to pay attention to it, and you don't see Coca-Cola trying to get you to take its products, right? But it's also one of the few places where um, everyone is welcome and uh, you don't have to pay to be there, and and there is professional guidance, right? There, there's a, a sense of expertise. Librarians are trained experts. They're committed to public service. They're, they're <laughs> completely immune to questions of, of, of capture or, or corruption. Um, they sound like a sense of a, the, the secular clergy. Right? Yeah, but it's also like if you, if you value libraries, you're capable of valuing institutions, which are our anchors, and they are the things that keep polyphony from turning into cacophony. And you know, which is why um, the what I saw in our media ecosystems in 2004 when I wrote the Anarchist in the Library, when I published the Anarchist in the Library, is, was that we had increasingly pressures toward the anarchistic, toward the chaos, toward the uh, the cacophony, and efforts to to completely break systems. And on the other hand, you had these efforts to completely lock down systems and protect the incumbents. And I thought both of these are fundamentally unhealthy, and we need to strive for a different model, a, a model that is more aligned with the, the principles of the public library. That informed the Googleization of everything, which came out in 2011, because one of the things I, I, it struck me as kind of absurd is that in a really short period of time, we were trusting this very young company to decide for us what is true and important. And we already had institutions like libraries that we had for hundreds of years been depending on and underfunding. And I kept saying, you know, if we want to build a global information ecosystem that allows to us to get past these uh, maldistributions of information, which I think is a you know a wonderful goal. Why are we outsourcing it to this company when we should as as the public be taking this on, right? So I concluded the book with this desire for um, a human knowledge project, right, where which would involve governments across the world funding li digital library projects and creating coordination and shared metadata and, and uh, federated search so that we could actually get that sort of system, whether or not Google ever goes out of business or decides to focus entirely on, you know, self-driving cars. We would always have this the system. So, so there is this through line of, of uh, through my work that you know, I want information to be widely available, but I want it to be certified as high quality, and I want to have forums through which we can debate and deliberate reasonably, um, so we don't have to throw things at each other. Do you think the project that was uh, run or at least uh, initiated by Robert Darnton at Harvard, the Universal Library, does that did that meet some of the some of the the kind of things you were calling for? Yeah, you know, uh, when when Bob Darnton wrote. A series of articles in the New York Review of Books. That's when I was working on the Google book. And we were 
it turned out we were on the same page. Like we were thinking similar thoughts at the same time. And we, we met up a couple of times uh, in Boston. We actually were on a, on a panel together at the Boston Public Library one time. And we realized that we had really been thinking about the same things. And, and then when he uh, was one of the early initiators of what has become the Digital Public Library of America, uh, he nominated me for the board. So I served on the board of the Digital Public Library of America for a number of years. And that was an amazing experience, getting to know librarians around the world, around the country and around the world in this effort. And it's been a, a remarkably successful effort to get public libraries and state libraries and state archives to um, be able to not only digitize their their records, but make them widely searchable through the portal of the Digital Public Library of America. He was focusing on America. He wanted a national library that would work that way. And of course, my vision was much more global, but they're not exclusive. The The notion is that the Digital Public Library of America will, would coordinate with other countries over time as well. And so I had set up this you know, human knowledge project as my big model, but of course, I don't build things the way that Bob Darton does. So he he was uh, you know he's been actually successful at building something real, which you know to, for which we should all be grateful. So one of the things that you and your colleagues uh, Lawrence Lessig and others were warning against in the nineties uh, and early two thousands was that there would be this sort of lockdown of culture, lockdown of knowledge, that sharing and mixing would be so prohibitive, or the laws against uh, sharing and mixing would be so draconian that it would inhibit creativity. Now, in 2018, I wonder whether there has been any kind of a diminishment in creativity as a result of those sorts of laws, which have not, to my knowledge, changed all that radically. Uh, you know, I don't think we could say that uh, our predictions of a cold and dark creative world came true. But but that's, I think, in part because we warned about it and there was some pushback against it and some resistance against it. So while, you know, de jour, copyright has not changed, in practice, it, it has. So what we don't see today is the recording industry or the film industry um, suing our students. We also have seen something we many of us were asking for in the early 90s, which was uh, a set of markets and formats that would be commercially driven, but facilitate low cost, you know, low price distribution of music and video, which we have. I mean, what's lower price than Netflix, right? What's lower price uh, than even iTunes? I mean, iTunes is a fairly efficient market, right? So given the fact that if you buy music through Amazon, you're getting unprotected MP3 files, right, which allow you to, you can take pieces of that and make it your own ringtone, right? I mean, that's exactly what we, we want to our culture to be configurable and adaptable. We wanted it to be affordable. But, you know, for most of us anyway, we weren't asking for any sort of nihilism. We didn't want complete freedom as in free beer, right? We we, we wanted the freedom to configure and build upon uh, culture. So in a sense, I think we won the argument. We lost a few legal cases. We certainly lost in our legislators, legislatures. But, we, um, but I think we won the overall cultural argument. And I think we see that in the sense that the industry's Kind of got a, came around to our side and said, you know, it's just not it's just not worth trying to fight for uh, lockdown, hundred percent control. We might just have to accept that we're never going to make the kind of money we made in the nineteen nineties, and that's okay. At the same time, we can find all these other ways to, for culture to proliferate. Now, there have been losers in this battle. So, recording artists and performing artists have it 
I would say, rougher than they did in the 90s, uh, largely because the royalties on digital files are so meager, especially on digital streaming. That's a market problem and a contractual problem and a supply and demand problem. It's not necessarily a legal problem or a policy problem. But I think we should recognize that recording artists have found it tougher to um, reap returns for their work. At the same time, I don't think that there's a strong argument that ramping up copyright could fix that. In fact, because copyright is always written by and for the interests of the publishers and, and recording industry, you know, it's not like changing copyright is going to this one time take the artist seriously. I mean, in my book, Copyrights and Copywrongs, one of the things I argued is that the artist is always used by the publisher in bad faith as being the symbol uh, that we need to save uh, when, in fact, the artist is always hung out to dry, ultimately. I think it's notable that uh, the solution, as it were, of some of the copyright issues that you were so concerned about came about via cultural uh, shifts and understanding of exactly the sort you've described. And I wonder about the role of culture when it comes to social media and Facebook in particular. You you have a very acute analysis of uh, Mark Zuckerberg himself. He's sort of a, a, a phantom that runs through the book. Right. Uh, you say you've never met him, right. but you've read all his speeches. You've heard him speak. You've sort of done a deep analysis of sort of trying to get a sense of what's going through his mind. And one of the things you say is that it's not necessarily he's a bad person. In fact, you don't think he's a bad person, but that he's been ill-educated. Well, what do you mean by that? So it's not just that he dropped out of Harvard, right? Because lots of people drop out of Harvard and are still educated. Lots of people never went to college and are still educated because they accept their own limits and they approach the knowledge of the world with uh, a sense of openness and wonder. And they don't try to engineer humanity along the lines of their vision, which is what Zuckerberg did, right? So there's no modesty in Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) um, uh, One of the reasons he was so boldly dropped out of Harvard is he thought he had it figured out, right? He thought, oh, his education was growing up as a teenager, sort of as a hanger-on in the hacker culture, a culture I was also sort of on the margins of. uh, So I kind of get where he was coming from. I know what he was trying to do. I know he thought that by providing a platform through which we could very easily, in a friction-free form, maintain social connections with people and express our thoughts to the right people at the right time in the right way, you know, we could spread knowledge and spread joy and um, spread understanding, right? I bought that line <laughs> in the 90s. Uh, and of course, he did too, right? So he was he's a lot younger than I am, but I subscribed to that vision at the time. So I, I know where he's coming from. But but ultimately, he what he has robbed himself of and, that, and therefore robbed us of is any sense of tragedy, any sense of the cruelty for which human beings are capable, any sense of uh, history, any sense of, you know, the diversity of human needs and uh, and conditions. So he has made a series of decisions about his platform that reflect very well his milieu. If you spent your life in New England prep schools and then Harvard and then Silicon Valley and then your experience of learning about how the world works means having lunch with Henry Kissinger at Davos, you are going to be extremely limited, right? I mean, we often talk about how using Facebook puts us in a filter bubble. There is no stronger filter bubble than the one Mark Zuckerberg grew up and lives in. Uh, And it's one that has limited his vision of 
what other people go through. So if you surround yourself with really successful, really smart young men who have never had an impediment, right, never had to stumble, never had to deal with, let's say, an abusive partner who stalks you, then of course you're going to design your privacy policies or lack thereof in a way that doesn't assume that that's ever a problem. And that has been Facebook's MO from the beginning. Now, of course, once they wake up and say, oh, my gosh, here's a problem we didn't anticipate, which, you know, maybe if you had had a few 40-year-old women working with you, you would have known, then, uh, you know, they scramble to provide some sort of tools to let us customize our experience. But the defaults are all set in Facebook's favor and not in, in our favor, right? You have to be aware of the problem. You have to be aware of the potential remedies, and then you have to take action. And it's always, the burden's always on the Facebook user, right? So that's kind of what I mean. Like the fact that he never understood that if we give everyone the potential to speak loudly, that a good number of us would use this platform to harm other people. And that by choosing to amplify things that generate strong emotions, which is basically how Facebook's algorithms work, that would only increase the power of those who wish to do harm to others. So what he created was a system that was intended to help us get along better and like each other better and share our puppy pictures better, all of which happens to some degree, but it was so easily hijacked, right? So, you know, one of the, the big takeaways to my book is that if you sat down to design a propaganda system for nationalist and authoritarian movements and leaders, you could not do better than Facebook. Like You would basically create Facebook. It's perfect for that. And we see it in action all over the world. Right. You, you mentioned that Facebook was uh, either designed for Donald Trump or Donald <laughs> Trump was designed for Facebook. It's sort of a chicken and egg. Exactly. Kind of and you know what? Donald Trump is like a lightweight in this battle, right? And the U.S. has gotten off easy in this in this problem, right? The, uh, the biggest Facebook successes in the world are Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines and Narendra Modi in India. They know how to use Facebook. In fact, Narendra Modi is the most popular Facebook politician in the world. And in both cases, well, Modi sort of mastered the strategy of the what I call the authoritarian playbook. So in 2014, Modi basically ran his entire campaign. His party, the BJP, ran their entire campaign on Facebook and WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, right? an instant messaging system that, that facilitates group messages and forwarding in a really toxic way. And and what he did was, you know, he uses Facebook to promote himself, right? So he's got constant Facebook Live uh, videos of his events, and he's he's constantly speaking directly to his followers through Facebook, and he's constantly staying in touch with the Indian diaspora through Facebook, which is a really powerful part of his constituency, where a lot of money and support comes from. And he's able to rally his people to do all sorts of things, including some really nasty things, some really violent things. Uh, he always keeps a distance from the actual calls to violence, but his party and the constellation of extremely scary right wing movements around his party are always wanting to call for violence against Muslims, against Christians, against people suspected of eating beef, people suspected of dating Muslims or marrying Muslims. I mean, it's a really nasty situation. So so he has the, his own sort of pro-party propaganda machine. Then he has, you know, as any political movement would have, a, a set of tactics to undermine support of the opposition parties. That's all predictable. That's what every political group, we expect them to do that. And we expect them these days to use Facebook to do it. It's just Facebook's really good at doing that in ways that radio and television were never good at. And the third part is the really nasty part, which is 
Narendra Modi and then Rodrigo Duterte after him have created essentially a troll army. Thousands of people who either work directly for the party or work just on behalf of the party because they're true believers to send out coordinated harassment efforts against critics, journalists, uh, NGO leaders, human rights leaders, LGBTQ advocates, Christian missionaries, um, and of course, Muslim leaders. And what they do, like if there's a if there's a journalist who's been working on some sort of story and he's identified or she's identified as a potential critic of the regime, then that person will start to receive rape threats and kidnapping threats and death threats. There will be videos passed around WhatsApp with the person's head put on, you know, nude photos and videos. Uh, and none of this is meant to be harmful directly in itself. But of course, much of it is, right? Because sometimes people believe this person is the devil and will actually harm this person, right? It's not hard to rile up enough people, only a handful of people in a, in a country of 1.3 billion, right? But the real problem is how do you do your job? How do you get up in the morning and sit down and do your research and write what you need to write and, and take a stand publicly and bravely against the government if you're always trying to deal with the latest thing, right? So it puts you off your game at least, or it terrifies you and really presents life or death threats at most. And so this is a great way of neutralizing any criticism, neutralizing any public debate. And again, it's part of the strategy of cacophony, right? Every authoritarian loves cacophony. Every authoritarian loves the fact that people in his or her country cannot think well about the problem or, or are focused on the immediate gratification or some distant enemy. That's, that's how the authoritarian wins. When you cannot have systematic critical thought about your condition, the authoritarian always wins. And that's what made Donald Trump's early comments so ominous about how you can't get anything really done unless you have a big catastrophe. That's right. And of yes. course, he's thinking about a 9-11 kind of thing where everyone has to sort of fall behind him and do exactly what he says. Precisely. And why every time he's close to facing some sort of comeuppance, or we all think he's going to face, Trump is going to face some sort of comeuppance. Then there's a thing that he brings up that's wacky, right? He'll say something completely wacky, like he's going to, through executive order, eliminate birthright citizenship. Of course he's not. But we spend 48 hours explaining how he's not going to do that. And then whatever we were supposed to be thinking about for those 48 hours is gone. So it's not just distraction. And it's not just falsehoods, right? It's just not just what we, I think, unfortunately call fake news. The problem is not that people are going to believe things that aren't true. It's that over time, we will get so exhausted that we won't care whether anything's true or anybody's telling the truth. And once everybody has lost faith in everything, again, the authoritarian wins. In a much less dramatic uh, subject, Facebook has, uh, has this very sort of deracinated idea of friendship. Right. It's taken the word friend and kind of sculpted it in such a way that it's almost unrecognizable. <laughs> you note the use of, in your book, capital F versus small f. And um, I wonder, too, about this, again, coming back to the education. You note that Aristotle talks about friendship a lot. In fact, of the 10 chapters of the uh, Nicomathean Ethics or Politics, uh, he two of them are devoted to friendship. Right. And he has a very nuanced idea of different levels of friendship that, that someone like Mark Zuckerberg could learn from. Yeah. What would he learn about Aristotle about friendship? You know what's fascinating is that when Mark Zuckerberg was in prep school, he studied Latin. He was like 
totally into Roman culture. I don't have any indication that he ever studied Greek or that he even immersed himself in English translations of, of Greek work. So I don't know how much Aristotle he gets. His sister, Donna, just wrote a really interesting book about the misuse of classics by the alt-right. I don't know if she finished her PhD, but she did graduate work at Princeton in classics. And this book is great. And she's clearly deeply knowledgeable. And she's she, you know, she skewers the manosphere for completely twisting uh, stoicism toward their own ends, right? Toward its own end. Anyway, so it would have been real easy for him to think deeply about what Aristotle says about friendship or what Aristotle says about politics, both of which I argue would have helped him at least to perhaps avoid some mistakes, some misuse. You know, one of the things that drives me crazy about Zuckerberg is the way he throws around really complicated, deep concepts as if they're just givens. So the one I've been freaking out about for the last year is every time he speaks now, he talks about community. He says that um, Facebook is its goal is to build community. And it, it makes me think that he has been hip to the bowling alone thesis, right? This notion that over the last 40 years we have, or 50 years in America, we have sort of degraded our ability to act communally. We've we've uh, we've isolated ourselves. We've atomized ourselves. And that Facebook is the, is the great solution for him. Instead of maybe reinvigorating the Kiwanis Club or reinvigorating the churches or reinvigorating the bowling leagues, we instead spend more time on Facebook and that Facebook will help us build community, right? But, you know, and he's run ads, right? Facebook's run ads saying the best part of Facebook is what happens off of Facebook, right? That we use Facebook to get together in real life, right? So this is all part of his effort to get us to think of Facebook not as an end in itself, but as the guide to how we will live our lives in our communities. But then he takes the leap and he says, Facebook is a community of 2.2 billion people, which is so wrong. There is no definition of community that can handle 2.2 billion people, right? So um, I have been playing with this idea of writing an op-ed where I basically invite him to take a sabbatical and come to the University of Virginia and finish his degree. I mean, I can't guarantee that he can get in, but, you know, I would write a letter of recommendation for him and we could we could see if he can, like, put together some coursework that can help him understand what he's been doing for the last 15 years, which I think would be really helpful to him and to everybody else. Because, I, you know, I just think that he hasn't thought deeply about a lot of these decisions he makes. Not that he would make different decisions, but he might. He might have made a few different decisions at the margins. In anti-social media, you're actually quite forgiving of Zuckerberg, much as you've been now. You're right. a good guy. You you say, well, look, okay, maybe he was badly educated. He didn't really know what he was doing. He's gone and tried to fix it in this sort of ham-handed way afterwards. Right. What if you took a darker turn and ah. you thought, you know, there is this sort of strain of techno-utopianism that's deep in Silicon Valley that all this kind of electoral politics is just garbage. It leads to all these terrible things. We really need to get over that much as we needed to get over privacy and maybe actually all the things that you're diagnosing are actually part of his plan. I don't think there's any evidence for that, right, first of all, especially when you talk about Zuckerberg. Now, when you talk about Peter Thiel, his buddy, absolutely. I mean, he is Darth Vader. Maybe he's the emperor. I mean, he's a, he's a troublesome character. Uh, someday soon, some very good journalist is going to write something extremely powerful and revealing about Peter Thiel's various activities. So maybe Zuckerberg is Thiel's useful idiot in that way. Maybe he doesn't know what he's doing, but yeah. you know, the, all the funders of Facebook, all these guys who've gotten rich off of off right. of it, 
Maybe they're all manipulating him. I don't know if they're manipulating. Well, they're influencing him, um, but or, and they certainly did in the early days. Uh, Zuckerberg himself is, you know, he's a, a full-fledged adult with kids and a life and concerns and and opinions about the world. But one of the things that does strike me about him is he is so apolitical. Uh, to the point of being anti-political, to the point of wanting for the longest time to deny that, going back to Aristotle again, human beings are political animals, and that the people using Facebook are likely to execute politics using Facebook, right? So his denial of the political influence of Facebook was stunning for years, even though he was willing to stand next to Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. Even though he was willing to smile his way through the Arab Spring and take credit for things he shouldn't have taken credit for uh, in, in 2011, he still didn't want to see Facebook as a political instrument that could be hijacked or abused in that way. He saw it as, a, as an instrument through which people will come together and recognize their shared humanity and, you know, and that would somehow transform us in some positive ways, which is a political act in itself, but it's not the only political act out there. But it's also a business decision, right? I mean, if, mm. if, if all of a sudden, much the way that publishers need to be exempt from the content that they're publishing in terms of liability, right. and there are all sorts of libel laws and, and other ones that protect them from that, he needs to be protected from the possible consequence. He needs deniability. He also just doesn't want to have to face the responsibility because it's terrifying, right? I mean, can you imagine building something and making it like more money than you could ever imagine, more money than you ever wanted or cared about? And then you wake up one day and you realize there's genocide going on in Myanmar and it's largely because of what you built. I mean, how do you look in the mirror? How do you get up in the morning? That's a brutal recognition. And it's why he has resisted that recognition for so long. It's the practices of denial that he and the people who run that company engage in. It's, it's truly stunning. Uh, and one of the things that whenever they speak in public or the times I've had conversations with Facebook people, their number one move, and I don't know if it's media training they get or whatever, but their number one move is to try to convince you of their sincerity. They get the problem. They're not bad people. They care. And I always, want, I always respond like, I don't care about your sincerity. That's not of interest to me. And it's not what I'm writing about. I care about the people in Myanmar, right? I care about the Rohingya. I care about what's going on in Kenya. I care about what's going on in Brazil, right? What happens to real people is what we should be talking about, not you and your commitment and your sincerity and your war room. You know, that is not of interest. Uh, let's talk about what's really going on in the world. Well, fortunately, the problems that Facebook has created are easily solved. And <laughs> as I recall, in the last chapter of your book, you succinctly summed up all the solutions for them. <laughs> Maybe you could tell our audience about what those were. Oh, it's a sad ending. I don't have a solution. I have responses, and many other people have responses as well. But there is no solution, right? Again, think about this. Three things about Facebook. The scale, 2.2 billion people in more than 100 languages. What? can you do to clean up Facebook and all of its various harms and maladies at that scale? That's pretty much impossible, right? So, I mean, people often on Twitter, I always get like, why don't they hire a couple thousand journalists? Like, well, <laughs> a couple thousand journalists who speak Burmese, I don't know, a couple thousand journalists who speak any of the dozen languages in the Philippines or the 20 languages in India. I mean, like, come on, what are we talking about really here? And that's not really the problem anyway, right? But nonetheless, look, there are a couple of responses I do think are proper. One, we 
we should have in this country, in Australia, in Brazil, in India, in other major countries where Facebook would have to change its global policy. We should have data protection along the lines of the general data protection regulations of Europe so that as individuals, we won't find the data that we create abused without our permission. Right? We would have to opt in to every use of our data and be given a clear, in clear language a sense of what our data is being used for. That is a completely reasonable and responsible regulatory system that would slow Silicon Valley significantly, but that should be our goal. We should be okay with slowing Silicon Valley. So that's that's big. The other thing I think we need is aggressive antitrust in ways that would require a complete reformulation of how antitrust works in this country or competition law works in the uh, in the European Union. Facebook should never have been allowed to buy WhatsApp and Instagram and Oculus Rift, their virtual reality platform, that is too much power. That is too much concentration. And both WhatsApp and Instagram, if they were competing social media platforms to Facebook, all three of them would be better. Right? They would all three have to try to avoid negative publicity. Uh, they would all be competing for advertisers. They would all be competing for our, our time and attention. And we could see, like, as young people defer their Facebook use, at least in North America, for a number of years and, and gravitate toward Instagram, Facebook doesn't care. It's the same company. And Facebook knows they're going to join Instagram eventually. And Facebook might actually merge the two systems sooner or later. And they'll be on Facebook whether they like it or not. Right? But what if? Over the next 10 years, people started saying, you know what, Instagram is so much better for the puppy photos and it doesn't have the hate speech and it doesn't have the the weird calls to not vaccinate your kids and it doesn't have a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff. Actually, it does, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, Instagram is just a better experience, right? The fact that people would spend more time on Instagram and less time on Facebook would be really healthy for the world doesn't matter and it's not going to happen. So we should have never allowed those mergers. We should break up Facebook as soon as possible. Unfortunately, American antitrust law is not really going to let that happen anytime soon. So that's a slow process. So those two things I've suggested are necessary but insufficient responses. And even if we did those two things, the problem with Facebook is Facebook, right? So again, the scale, the algorithmic amplification, the fact that anything that generates strong emotions spreads around Facebook, like conspiracy theories and hate speech, you know, that stuff wins on Facebook every time. Even if you disagree with the stuff, it wins, right? So it doesn't matter if everybody hates what you just posted. The fact that they just commented on it amplifies its reach. And the third thing is the advertising system, which is better than any advertising system ever created. It's sucking up all the money that used to go to other advertising-based industries like television, radio, and newspapers and magazines. So that means there's less and poor journalism across the world. And Facebook and Google are making all the money, even though they're not producing anything that actually helps us act as responsible citizens or decent parents or any of that, right? And uh, and so we're in this spiral. We're in the spiral where the institutions we depend on to help us understand the world are getting poorer and weaker. And the institutions that are ensuring that we are incapable of thinking clearly are getting stronger and richer. So we're... St- Screwed. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much, Siva, for Such a downer. Uh, coming and talking to us about Facebook and, uh, you know, maybe the cultural changes that your work did, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago will, will have an effect this time. Well, you know, look, and that's really you want to know my response. My response is we need to pour money into libraries. We need to pour money into universities. We need to pour money into science. We need to pour money into Chautauquas, forums that get us together to recognize our common humanity and our common 
fate. We need to be able to look across at someone who disagrees with us and agree on a core set of facts and mark a path forward, make compromises, or you know, lose one day and win the next. We need to get to the point where we can actually think like grown-ups about our problems. And Facebook is a problem. It's not the only problem. If we invested in the institutions that help us think, we might actually have a chance. Thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate your coming by and talking to us. Oh, my pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producer is Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and, for their technical and design wizardry, Aaron Dowdy and Selina Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org.